You are listening to a CJTR podcast. Uh, I guess on the circuit. Yeah. Um, my first book, Need a Snack, won a QWF award for first book prize, which is like, I never imagined that it would have. It just feels so crazy. I feel like I wrote that book so much for Native people, and I think Native people who are queer, Native people who are trans, and Native people from the prairies or who grew up in the prairies. So to see it have this larger readership is just so, like, it just, like, represents, like, a huge shift. And, like, Canlet, like, before we started recording, we were talking about the appropriation prize and how that all happened. Like, that wasn't even, like, two years ago. And, like, that's actually what the Indigenous Voices Awards, for which I was nominated yeah. for, what it stemmed from. And so to think that, like, in two years, now we start to think of, like, queer, trans, indigenous literature as, like, to be something that comprises Canlit, it's a really exciting time to be writing and publishing. Yeah, that's amazing. So your book is a memoir. Mm -hmm. What was the impetus for you to choose that format for for what your book was going to be your first book yeah for sure um okay so i have a weird relationship to the idea of memoir i'm like yeah. what do i have to say at 32 about my life like I'm, it's not like i'm writing my memoir of all my days i'm like my golden years or whatever and there is something so i don't know like the like just like the ego about the idea of writing one's memoir was something that i really didn't want to do with my work like i have a i always thought of my practice more as like creative non-fiction criticism or like creative non-fiction um work that really excavated from my own experiences in my body to talk about uh, issues of colonialism and i had really extensive journals from the time uh, about when i was like 14 i started writing journals and so i was able to pull from some of this content to kind of devise a manuscript that did fit together and had a sort of super narrative and my publisher kind of helped me see that it does have um a form of narrative to it because it's about my life and like what happened in, um, when i was growing up in regina and what led me to move to montreal and when it came to publishing it, I think that's when the memoir became placed on it, like the label of memoir. And that's about marketability. That's because mm -hmm. memoir sells. And yeah. I mean, since I've published my memoir, there's been like, I don't know, like, I shouldn't say that, like, I own indigenous memoir or whatever, because that's so egotistical. But like, I come from a lineage of like, um, um, like the first uh, Maria Campbell wrote like Halfbreed which was the first memoir by an indigenous woman in Canada and it just like broke open the field like there's been a lot of different forms of indigenous memoir but ever since I published my memoir there's been sort of a resurgence of the, me the memoir yeah. um, as like a form in indigenous literature like there's been five different indigenous memoirs published in the last year and there's two more coming out next year oh amazing yeah so cool yeah. Um, and so this it must have been like a, a really major task in terms of like pulling pulling it together, doing the work, and you're also doing your PhD. Is there a lot of overlap or um, how do they relate if they do at all? Sure. <clears throat> um, yeah, I think so. I think all my work is just like a different ways that I use to like express myself, like curation and research um, and uh, critical and creative writing. I think the curation and the research more comes from a feeling of kinship and responsibility I have to queer and trans artists who think alongside me or like the idea of um, relational forms of citation. And like, I like how I can write about an artist and be thinking alongside someone as opposed to like authoritatively owning um, truth on the page. Um, I think that my PhD though is like, if I'm being real about it, it's like also my creative writing is not going to like 
provide a lucrative future for me <laughs> necessarily. So I think I also need to think about strategic ways that I can best benefit my community. And that's probably moving into a position with a PhD where I can create jobs and infrastructure for queer and trans artists. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you have a purpose and that must feel really good. <laughs> um, so it, yeah, you're, you worked on this book, you're doing so much work in, um, towards a PhD and then this sense of a community and this sense of, um, a lineage that you're part of, that you're, you're alive to. Um, and there's a lot of responsibility with that. And, uh, I know, I know personally that you, you've taken on, um, a lot to kind of, um, to help to benefit other people who are kind of, um, emerging and, um, kind of, at different stages of their careers Mm -hmm. in like related fields or in your field. Um, And so uh, I know that um, related to that, there's a lot of burnout that happens Mm. Um, and there's a lot of pressure, like you said, to, to find something that's lucrative to create, um, to, to create uh, like a career for oneself and Mm -hmm. in order to kind of sustain um, a life (laughs) at the bare minimum. Um, And so, as someone who is kind of like on the move and doing so much, how do you kind of find, how do, how do you balance it or how do you want to balance it? If perhaps it, it, it isn't something you've mastered. Mm. Um, it's so hard. I, I really struggle with how I should talk about this question publicly because there are emerging people and I want to be, honest with them about the conditions of my success and the success of my peers. Um, mm-hmm. And the reality is I've been working like nonstop. Like I've been working nonstop for like the last um, six years of my life. Like I work, I've worked through the night. Like I don't take breaks. I don't take vacations very often. Like, and this is like, I think th- why it's important to name this is because the conditions of success within industries like art are often um, related to, um, forms of privilege, like people who have more time or economic resources to do writing and research and to be going to every opening. Um, and this definitely, like, predominantly this hasn't been BIPOC folks. This hasn't been single mothers or people who don't have the economic means to be afforded the time to have creative practice. And when BIPOC people do enter industries like art and literature, most often they just have to push themselves beyond reasonable capacity and, yeah, be living in states of burnout constantly because they have to work so hard to make with the space between them and their well more well-situated peers, I guess I'll say. I'll say that. Um, so I, I wish that I had a really sort of like flourishy answer for this and that the balance is easy and that you can prioritize yourself, but that I don't know if that is true for BIPOC people. Like some of our most famous indigenous artists in Canada have a creative practice. And then on the side, they work at like parks, Canada, like they they have full-time jobs. Like the only people in Can- native artists in Canada who make a living off their art career is like a handful of men. So that's the reality. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually recently read an article about, um, uh, BIPOC, which is black indigenous people of color critics who, um, really struggle in kind of critical writing because, um, in order to be, um, properly critical, oftentimes they're put into really precarious positions mm-hmm. where people won't, um, 
like what they're saying, and so it's very difficult for them to find publishers or to get support for their writing, mm-hmm. and so um, th- they kind of remain in a precarious position as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so it kind of, A, undermines the work that is to be done in art criticism mm-hmm. or in criticism, um, and also kind of perpetuates this lack of representation in the kind of like broader voice um, in the arts, and it and they and it seems like questions about how do you rest and how do you find work and stuff mm-hmm. are seem can be often um, they don't sound as serious or they don't mm-hmm. sound as earnest mm-hmm. when you're talking about art and these things. But it, I feel like it's directly tied to like this question of how to get more voices and a more diverse representation of voices mm-hmm. um, out there because. Mm-hmm. Um, you need like a full belly and a place to live in order to think like yeah. really deeply and to feel safe to express your voice. Um, I think that's really perceptive of you. That's really like really mature that you like, you see that, that there's like this, um, yeah, I think that's so perceptive of you. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, um, so aside from your own book, um, do you have um, any books that have been published recently, perhaps by colleagues, perhaps not, um, <laughs> that you can recommend or that um, have really excited you? Mm-hmm. Um Definitely read Ariel Twist's poetry memoir, Disintegrate, Dissociate. Ariel Twist's family is actually from Regina, so it has a lot of really good, like, prairie sort of, like, um, Easter eggs, I guess. And then also Billy Ray Belcourt, who is a Rhodes Scholar, but also from Edmonton, and so has a lot of really good, like, prairie sensibility in the collection. He just released a collection called Indian Coping Mechanisms, and it's like, um, how do I describe it? It's like an anthropological field journal, but, like, like, utilized for, like, just, like, gay native life it's really hilarious and i love it and also very serious and dark and wonderful and everything billy ray is and then i also want to shout out um brandy bird's recent collection through rahelia ghost press it's actually a chapbook and it's called i am still too much it's like the best poetry collection of like last year You're listening to A Real Piece of Art on CJTR 91.3 FM, Regina Community Radio. Today I'm talking to writer, curator, and researcher, Lindsay Nixon. So, um, as you mentioned, uh, you were nominated for the Indigenous Voices Literary Award, Mm -hmm. and you uh, referred to the appropriation... Uh, award that was um, sort of jokingly but then seriously um, put up a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um, as the result of an editorial um, in Wright magazine by Hal Nidvedziki, mm-hmm. um, who uh, the quote is, I don't believe in cultural appropriation. In my opinion, anyone anywhere should be encouraged to imagine other people's, uh, other cultures, other identities. I'd go so far as to say there should even be an award for doing so. What an um, and so. <laughs> not Sorry, not sorry, Hal. <laughs> um, so many of the writers who were featured in that issue of Write Magazine, such as Alicia Elliott, mm-hmm. um, felt 
that their work was undermined by this kind of thinking and that um, there are many non-Indigenous writers, um, such as Joseph Boyden, mm-hmm. who's the kind of probably most well-known example, mm-hmm. who benefit from this kind of thinking, but that it actually um, hurts um, indigenous people and other, mm-hmm. um, non-white people who are, who are writing, um, or and creating in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this broaches a really good question of how do you think about writing or approaching something that you don't understand or, um, what, what is your reaction to reading work by people who don't have firsthand experience mm-hmm. or who, who might be, um, in danger of wading into um, appropriation if they don't, mm-hmm. if the, the ac- proper legwork isn't done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a really relevant question for people who are making, who are kind of in that world and wanting to sample or be influenced mm-hmm. by the kind of like relational world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also a good question for people who are, um, you know, just taking in art and reading things um, and trying to understand um how to how to understand these kind of like broader issues mm. yeah oh the appropriation prize was so wild like i really view that as being like a turning point in in canadian in canlet and it's, i'm so i'm still so amazed at how quick everything happened and how it, like yeah that's still, that went down when i was still working it was like my first year of working at canadian art that was only like three years ago and it is really what just like blew alicia elliott's career out of the water because she just, like as a mohawk woman refused to be silent about it and mohawk women get shit done by refusing to be silent about things and i think it did bring up this conversation yeah so this is a conversation i think people are having now about what is the line of appropriation because representation is also very important and so there's two kind of like ethical conversations that we need to have alongside each other the first one is okay so i've seen writers who do write books for instance about diverse communities like queer communities for instance that they try to encompass um but then they've gotten criticism that they um, were erasing like trans women from the work or whatever. Mm-hmm. And because of the nature of creative industries and who has access to um, uh, education or uh, just uh, industry um, potential like um, uh, opportunities within industry, like often more often than not, trans women have been pushed out of these spaces. So it's hard to find trans women who are equipped and ready to like work within these spaces. Not that we should like stop, trying so if you can't really write a queer book unless you write i feel like we live in 2019 you can't be writing queer books or books about queer and trans communities without the inclusion of the reality of everyone within those communities for instance so how do you do that so you you still need to be able to think through how you can write about experiences that aren't necessarily your own but representing people ethically and consider considerably cons- like considerate about the different um, sort of social and socioeconomic uh, economic colonial violences that they might face. But at the same time, there's an, a, like a secondary conversation we need to be having about the fact that, yeah, there isn't enough trans women, there isn't enough indigenous people, there isn't enough black folks within this industry to take these positions. So what are we doing to mentor these people to make sure that, yes, we are writing these narratives now, but there is a point where there actually are these peoples within the communities who can write these narratives. Mm-hmm. And th- like, yeah, that means a lot of really self-critical pe- like criticism people need to step back from their roles within this industry and there's a lot of like self-protection i see happening and a lot of representation but a lot not a lot of white people moving out of positions of power like publishing and letting um, people of color move into these positions and have um, stake and sovereignties in the futures of these literary communities 
Yeah, it's um, it's such a tricky one. I feel like there's an old guard there, mm. and um, yeah, finding room within it, which I think ties back to that kind of sense of exhaustion that comes with sort of constantly, um, um, being on, being able to contribute only through kind of like freelance, mm. um, kind of uh, opportunities that comes kind of sporadically mm-hmm. um, as like guest editors or, so right. you know, those yeah. kind of opportunities where, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a lot of work um, and a, yeah, a lot of effort. Sorry, I'm getting flustered. No, I think um, that's so true. Like the precarity of it, like how do you, how do you contend with these, you're so right and perceptive, but like there's this precarity of like, and you said this thing before that was so perceptive too. It was like, we were just told, oh, it's just art. Like, why are you making a big deal? Like, you're lucky to have a job in, in the art world. But it's like, no, like, we, this is still work. We're still doing labor, producing things. Like, this is an economy that we're participating in. And we deserve to be here and to make money off the, our creative labor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. <laughs> You've written a successful memoir and you're, um, people are really loving it and responding to it. And now it's seems to be part of a pattern or a trend of people being interested in publishing, um, like the, this style of book. Um, do you have a sense of, um, what writing you want to do in the future or are you, (laughs) are you just resting and enjoying what you've done now, which you're allowed to do by the way? (laughs) No, I'm like gearing up to do a lot of writing. Like, actually, I'm writing a manuscript right now. It's a fiction manuscript, and it's about um, queer trans Indians in the city uh, navigating an art scene in Montreal. And then I'm also writing my my dissertation. Obviously, no big deal. It's a little dissertation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, your PhD is in art history. Yes. Um. So. What kind of are the like specific focuses or concentrations of your PhD work? Um, I'm like sighing because I'm just like, I think I've been really struggling this like last month or so with like disciplinary restrictions of art history. I think I went to art history because I love art and I want to work with artists and I want to do curation and I want to do arts writing, but then contending with like the field of art history and like what this means. It's this totally different other beast than what I thought it was. I'm sure you can empathize having navigated these kind of departments as well, but it's so rigid and like traditional. And I'm just like very like, I don't know, especially with indigenous art. I feel like I'm just at this point where I'm like, you guys can keep fighting over the scraps of yesterday to like (laughs) all the ego of these different projects that comprise an indigenous art canon. And I feel like I just like, me and my contemporaries and the artists that I'm working with and alongside, like Dana Danger, Lindsay Burning, uh, Suzanne Kite, um, Asiniak, I feel like I just want, I'm, I see them using digital arts and new media um, as this means of projecting um, what our futures are going to look like and how we're going to move forward as a community from implications of colonialism and live this like indigenous future as an, like as a form of ethics that we've all been talking about. And, I think that that's why it's important for me to do research about these artists who are creating right now so I can try to encompass something or like just witness something or be a part of something. Yeah, um, I I like that perspective. And I'm really curious, as someone who has studied art history um, in back in, when I was in school, um, 
there was um, an interesting conversation around like art history now, especially in relationship to contemporary art Mm -hmm. and kind of like post-colonial or like anti-colonial practices. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was kind of two schools of thought that I encountered. And one was seeing art history as, um, as what it is and think seeing yourself as someone who can sort of like fill in the gaps. Mm. And so you find the, the female artists or the non-white artists and you, you put them in, in the timeline that already exists Mm. in order to populate it with a broader range of faces and names. Um, and then there's also the, um, kind of art history that sort of negates a lineage at all and, mm. and doesn't want to think about mm. uh, a, uh, any kind of canon, like, and it feels like the canon is sort of corrupt to begin with. So what's the point of... It's because I'm like, I don't want to contend with the canon. Mm-hmm. I just feel like um, that 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 is what is like the best way for me to approach Indigenous art scholarship right now just because of all the different politics about it, but what you're talking about, it just reminds, like, there's so many people doing this really important work, like, do you know Dr. Charmaine Nelson out of McGill University? My sister is maybe her biggest fan in the whole world. (laughs) Her scholarship is awesome. She, like, um, and there's uh, that other artist, I wish I could remember who did it, but, like, they're all talking about, so they use objects like um, runaway slave ads, which were adverts that were put in newspapers when um, enslaved people would run away from their, their owners, and I say that in quotations, in um, Quebec, so like in Montreal or Quebec City, and you can like pull narratives like to see like kind of like wh- who these people were, and there's this one woman who returns consistently. Her name is Thursday, and she's just like this badass who was running all the time. And so I think scholars like Charmaine Nelson and there's this other artist. I wish I could remember her name. Oh God. But she has this amazing photo series of just like this beautiful woman that she imagines is like a modern day Thursday, like on the run wearing this like, like couture gown and like just live like in the city, like talking on phones and stuff like, Oh, right. Yeah. I think I've seen those. Um, for anyone who's curious, I'll post, uh, links to all of the books and stuff that you've mentioned and these artists cool. um, online so cool. that they can like see this and reference it. Um, and I see like I, I see what you mean about kind of wanting to contend with the canon mm. because it exists and because you have to acknowledge yeah. it. There's like this long durée that we do need to talk about and we do need to contend with. And yeah, like there is also like these histories that we know and like we do need amazing writers of color and scholars of color and artists of color to imagine how um, women and queer and trans people of color fit into these narratives. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time for coming out and chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Thank um, you for having me. And I um, wish you all the best with your work. Um, I, I'm very reassured that there's someone with like your energy doing the work <laughs> that you're doing um, because I think it's, yeah, it's a big task and it's a lot of um, a lot of different things that you've taken on. And it sounds like you're very well equipped to do it. Oh, good. Um, Thank you. I mean, I'm just excited for all the, there's like a whole generation of really cool BIPOC femmes coming up after me and I'm just excited to help them get to where they want to be. Thank you for listening to A Real Piece of Art on CJTR 91.3 FM, Regina Community Radio. I'm your host, Lillian O'Brien Davis. 
Today I talked to Lindsay Nixon about their writing practice and various creative projects. Special thanks to Guidewire for the fantastic music used throughout this episode. Be sure to check out the A Real Piece of Art Facebook group and Instagram account, Real Piece of Art 2019, for show updates and images of the artists, artworks, and texts we discussed on the broadcast. Love podcasts? Listen to podcasted episodes of A Real Piece of Art by searching the show title on iTunes Podcasts, going to soundcloud.com slash realpieceofart, on the CJTR app, or the free Radio Player Canada app.